Well, hello and welcome to episode 32 of the 1099 for the week of March 7th, 2016. I'm your host, as always, Josiah Nodden, the editor and community manager of Chan Gentleman, as well as a former writer for GameSpot and IGN. And with me today is the co-founder of Mode 7 Games, which is a studio behind the games uh, Determinants, Frozen Synapse, Frozen Cortex, and the recently announced Frozen Synapse 2, Paul Kildoff Taylor. Paul, how are you doing today? Josiah, hello. It's fantastic to be here, and extra bonus points to you for mentioning Determinants, a game <laughs> that nobody talks about anymore, for good reason, but I'm sure we'll get into that. I'm always looking for brownie points, so I might have done some research, and I was like, you know, no one mentions this, and I, to be honest, haven't played the game, but, you know, I want to see if I can throw that one in there. Well, you uh, were doing so well, you shouldn't, you should have pretended that you had <laughs> you know, extra credit. This podcast is all about honesty. Uh, yeah, speaking yeah. of being honest, I, so I reached out to you almost immediately after Frozen Synapse 2 was announced. Uh, mm-hmm. And the re- one of the reasons was when I first started to write, when I first got into it, one of the first games that the sm- very small site I was working on covered was Frozen Synapse. That was like one of the big, for me at the time, like a, a big game to cover. It was uh, The site was <laughs> called Reaction Time. Uh, right, right. It was a, it was a, uh, a UK-based website, actually. And we, me and the editor at the time, had played a lot of the game and I really enjoyed it. But initially I looked at it and was like, I suck at strategy games. Uh, just in general, maybe I might be dumb or I might just have very bad patience, but, uh, I just kept playing that game and really enjoying it and getting a good handle of it. And just from the style to just the flow of the, uh, the actual turns was just really, really interesting and different for me. And it gave me a greater appreciation for tactical games moving forward. So just to kind of kick things off, how did you come up with the idea for the original Frozen Synapse? Well, first, thank you for that. That's that's a really nice way of describing that game. It, it is kind of a difficult game to get into in some ways, but uh, I do also feel like we managed to do something a bit different. Yeah, so in terms of where the idea came from, it was really from uh, our lead designer, Ian Hardingham, who's my, my business partner at Mode 7. We've been friends since we were like 14 years old, so we've known each other forever. We used to go around his house and play games. Um, and one of the games that he kind of talked about making um, was an updated modern version of laser squad nemesis mm. um because he got really hardcore into that game with uh, with one of his friends they went on holiday and they basically um played that game sort of uh, where they were staying like the whole time um and the thing that he really focused on with that was was randomly generated scenarios but also this idea that you didn't need to have this massive setup phase so for for those people who kind of aren't that familiar with like the older XCOMs and those games you basically kind of would start off on one side of the map and then you'd need to scout to find where the enemy was at all. And what would happen a lot of the time, and they've kind of trimmed this down in the modern XCOMs, but in the old school ones, you would get so bored of trying to find where the aliens were yeah. that you would just like send a guy running off and then you'd run into loads of trouble and then the actual meat of the action would start. So Frozen Synapse was about trimming all that away, randomly generating the situation and just putting you straight in it and seeing if that was a good game. Um, and that as a sort of conceit, ended up really, really informing the game. It was just about maximizing kind of how interesting those situations were. And that's really where the idea came from. It took us four years to make. So we played around with quite a lot of different variations, small variations uh, of that idea. Um, and then, yeah, it turned into the game that, that you know now. So four years to make. And correct me if I'm wrong, your studio started all the way back in 2005? That is correct, yeah. So there was right around the time that the Xbox 360 had come out, but it was mm. before indie games were really catching fire uh i I, you know you saw a lot of the 
Xbox Live games coming out, and some of it seemed like, well, these are all like cheap, older arcade games or modernized yep. things. There wasn't this, you know, there weren't the braids of the world, there uh, right, weren't right. the bastions of yep. the world. So yep. at the time, you're working on this game for four years. There's mm. not at really at that time this very healthy viable indie market what was your <laughs> goal with it was there moments <laughs> while you're developing this to be like we might have just put four years into something that because we don't have this you know massive budget this big studio that no one maybe some people will just never hear about this that's a very polite way of, of asking why the hell did you do this <laughs> must be crazy um yeah so we uh we sort of Ian was working on Determinants, the, the the game you mentioned, which was our first game. It's a sword fighting game. And he actually started that in 2002, oh. um, just after he left university. He did a university project in the Talk game engine, which is what we still use, believe it or not. Um, and he was trying to make this kind of crazy flying sword fighting game then. And back then, I mean, the only indie games that we knew about were other sort of hobby projects in the Talk engine. Um, and Uplink by Introversion, which released in 2001. Uh, and you had to buy, you had to order it on CD from them, and they would put it in a little um, sort of jiffy bag and send it to you. And I, I bought a copy of Uplink before I went to university, and it arrived, and I just thought it was amazing. So we started off in that context. Um, and then Determinants finally sort of properly came out in 2006. And by that point, you'd seen a bit of an escalation of stuff. So you started to see Introversion did uh, Darwinia, which got a lot of attention. Oh, it was yeah. the first the first indie game that we'd seen, you know, that was getting magazine covers and stuff like that. Um, and also they did a game called Defcon. Um, I forget which one of those came first. But anyway, they were starting to get games on Steam. Um, and we saw Steam really as like you know the thing because it, we realized that introversion were doing it they had a company they had an office and stuff and it was just me and ian in ian's bedroom we thought well if they can afford an office and stuff that's got to be enough money for us to just make games on right so that was kind of something to aim for um and we're now very good friends with those guys which is fantastic um and we talked to them a lot. But back then, I mean, we really sort of effectively idolized them and just thought, well, if we can do what introversion do, then we'll be okay. Was it was this something that you put all of your resources into? Was was developing games at the time like, well, this is my complete day job? Were you working at all elsewhere to support that? How was that structured? So the first part of that, I was still at university. So I was at university um, 2002 to 2005. Um, mm. So when, when Determinants was happening. So I did that kind of just when I could around my, my work. Um, and then afterwards, uh, I went back and lived with my parents and Ian did the same thing. And we're very lucky to have parents who were understanding enough to to um, let us do that. My dad was kind of involved with starting businesses and, and so on uh, in his job. He kind of knew what he had to do. So uh, very, very lucky. And it's something that that kind of thing is something that you really have to bear in mind when you're talking to other developers, <laughs> because a lot of people didn't have that luxury. And we, we definitely understand it was a huge luxury and privilege. So that was happening. And we started and, and our goal was really to earn enough money so that we didn't have to live with our parents anymore. and We could give them a bit of a, a break. So we started off doing um, contract work. I did freelance writing for a while. So uh, I wrote for a magazine called Computer Music in the UK, um, which is about music tech. And I wrote for some games magazines as well. And Ian did some contract programming. Uh, and through that whole period, we did various different things. We worked on porting games for a hardware controller called the Novent Falcon, which... Oh, was, my God. Yes. <laughs> are you aware of this? Yes. 
<laughs> Great. So we did we did a lot of work on that. We Novin were just the most amazing company. They're absolutely lovely guys. Uh, and we really enjoyed working for them. We got to do some really fun, quite weird stuff. They had a snowmobile poker game called Arctic Stud Poker Run, uh, which is one of the weirdest games I've ever seen. <laughs> we we ported that uh, and some other stuff. Um, yeah, so uh, so we did that. We also worked for TV production companies um, on some software to display graphics for quiz shows. Uh, so we ended up doing a lot of stuff. Just really odd things. Uh, our software was used on things like The Weakest Link um, and shows like that. Uh, really? So we, we, yeah, so we ended up um, working with a company who did that, spending a lot of time in TV studios, getting very tired. Uh, all of this was while sort of Determinants ba- barely made any money. Um, but the that contract work just enabled us to keep going through the four-year dev of Frozen Synapse. Um, and then we had the, the point when it changed was the Frozen Synapse beta, where we showed the game to some journalists. It was particularly Kieran Gillen wrote this incredible preview of the game on Rock, Paper, Shotgun. And the night that came out, Valve e- emailed me and said, hey, have you considered putting your game on Steam? <laughs> to which I replied, yes, in fact, I have considered that. That is something I have definitely considered. Uh, so, so, yeah, it kind of went from there. Um, so yeah, the, the the very early phase of Mode Seven was very sort of scrappy, trying to make ends meet, um, and then we we ended up having a success with Frozen Synapse. And that's one of just in general the idea of starting a studio and kind of not knowing the future. I feel like that takes it's bold. Like I don't know if I would be able to do that just with how my personality is, where it's like, all right, like I would love to make a game, but we got to put everything into this and we're rolling the dice a bit. Uh, and yeah. you you, yeah. S- you speak about you know, budgets and. You know, at that point, having to kind of do a lot of odd jobs and stuff like that to be able to support yeah. this. But, and please don't take this the wrong way. Was the aesthetic, which I love, was that more about style or was it because of the budget? Because it's interesting and colorful and unique. Um, but I'm guessing yeah. it was, wasn't something you looked at it and you're like, this is a cool style that maybe like with where you were technically and where you were in terms of budget, you're able to pull it off. I know when I was talking recently to Dave Gilbert, Gilbert of Wajedai Games, he mentions like, you know, we, the style we do is like it was because of the budget very very much of the time. Like that's why these games look that certain way and they look good, but he understands it's it's a mix of that. Was that kind of how it was for you? Yeah. So with Determinants, we went for this very elaborate, you know, it's a 3D game. We had these big textured landscapes that you could fly around in. And we had these characters. And it it just really showed us how you really dig your own grave with something like that, because it immediately gets compared to AAA games, games that have, you know, superior engines, superior effects, superior assets, big art team. And nobody cares that it's like one guy, we had one guy who was a teenager, just he was drawing concept art for us in his spare time. And he got home after school. We had another guy doing text. It was really, you know, desperate. And we we did that. And the outcome was, a game that just looks weird. Like a lot of the, the characters and animation look incredibly weird, but the landscapes look really nice. So when we came to do Frozen Synapse, the initial idea was to do a pixel art game that was kind of from the Zelda, like side top down perspective. Because huh. um, we were originally making it as a Nintendo DS type believe it or not whoa really uh, yeah we thought hey you know what the ds needs it needs a hardcore tactical game um and Kids we went this. down yeah we went down this route for a while uh and then we talked to a couple of pixel artists and they were like do you do you understand how much work this is to do hand pixel art for all of these levels and all of these characters and stuff that you want like it's going to cost a ridiculous amount of money 
we didn't have that. Uh, and I also had uh, a lunch with a guy from a publisher, a publisher called Koch Media, who are still around in the industry. Mm. And we t I talked to him about what we were doing. And he said, you are making, make this game for PC. There is no way in hell you're going to make it for the DS. It's a completely stupid idea. And he showed me some sales figures for strategy games on the DS. And he explained to me how in a retail uh, game, how the cost breaks down in terms of like marketing and how much goes to the distributor and how much goes to the store and how much goes to the publisher. He said, you're never going to make money doing this. Do it on PC. And that just seemed like a really cogent thing to me. Like, well, if we do it on PC, we don't have to go through all these, jump through all these hoops mm. and we can use whatever art style we want. And then sort of from there, uh, I just looked into the things that we could afford to do. And also the thing I always wanted for the game was for it to feel like a movie, for it to feel like you were the guy sort of in the truck outside the building directing the squad who, you know, are going in to do the Mission Impossible thing inside. And that's why I wanted the player to feel like that. And the more I looked at that, and the more I thought, well, it, it will feel like that if it's like an application, if it's like the tactical designer Windows 3.1 application, uh, then that's going to have a more powerful emotional impact on the player. So it was budget, but it definitely had a lot of these other things, other motivations around it as well. And at this point, I really think I've only talked to, on this podcast, to people who are in the U.S. And like we mentioned, you're, you are in the U.K. And I, I always want to know, is it harder to get coverage as someone outside of the U.S.? Because so many of the conferences, so many of the major publishers are stationed here. And of course, it's not just the U.S. I'm not like trying to be like, oh, well, the U.S. is the only place you need to be. But do you still get a chance to get to industry events? And have you ever felt like where you're stationed has hurt the the marketing reach of your games or do you think there's no real association with that it's a real double-edged sword because the uk is a really good place to be for games especially at the moment um we have quite a lot going on so obviously there's rock paper shotgun and Eurogamer. Um, a video gamer, a PC gamer, and, you know, a huge, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to offend whichever site I forget to say, <laughs> but there's a huge number of media outlets that are read, you know, quite widely, uh, in the US as well and, and in Europe based in the UK. So we do have that advantage. There's also a really, really good scene, I suppose, of indie developers in the UK, most of whom know each other. Um, and we talk a lot and, and, and sort of help each other out from time to time. So there is that advantage. But yes, um, with some of the, the bigger outlets, I mean, it used to be sort of uh, back in the day, your Destructoids um, and your Kotaku's and your joysticks mm. uh, were extremely difficult to, I, I would never get a response to a press release from anyone who worked there. And you couldn't find out who worked there because they would always hide their contributor lists and they, they just didn't, there wasn't a system for uh, someone outside the the industry PR to come in and say, hey, we're making a game because that just didn't exist. And all of that's changed now and they're a lot more open. But you definitely felt then that there was this big wall, you know, with the US. But the first time I went, I went to Austin GDC in, in 2007 um, and I met uh, Christian Nutt um, and uh, a bunch of other people from uh, from Gama Sutra when I was out there. And that was sort of like the first journey, Brandon Sheffield as well, and Brandon Boyer. Um, and those guys kind of made me just realize, like, oh, the, the US journalists are just the same. There's people who like games, and if I need them, I'll get on with them, and, and so on. So that was the start of me sort of thinking, yeah, I can go out to these events, and I can meet people, and I can meet these guys just the same as I met the UK journalists. Um, but it's still, you know, there's still some difference there, and it can be hard for a new 
dev based here to sort of try and understand that world and figure out exactly what you need to do to uh, to get that kind of press. And you mentioned how difficult it was before to kind of, like you said, break into some of those outlets by sending out press releases. Uh, mm. Today, let's say, let's say next week, the sequel comes out that yeah. you're developing. Um, how do you think you carry a lot more weight because you are now the frozen synapse guys? Like you now have this clout, you have this game in your pocket that people really enjoy that people will now cover it or do you think it's somehow it can be even harder because of just how many goddamn games are coming out on steam every week because you look at that new releases and it's just i know a lot of developers have told me that before you expect at least a certain amount of time on that new release front page and that helps that's so much of your sales that people just see it and they look at it and they might buy it or the reviews are high and they buy it now it's like you put it on there and an hour later it's off the front page because all these new add-ons for train simulator have come out or (laughs) this new minecraft early access clone is here so do you Mm. think that your past experience and your past success is going to help you or do you think this is another case where could you get swept under the rug a bit yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different things there. It's definitely harder now, as you say, because of the number of games. So when we did Frozen Synapse, I think we we got review code out to people like a week and a half before the release date, and that was enough to get sort of bigger reviews through. Now, I mean, that would be suicidal. You wouldn't get a single review. It, I, I think, you know, you're really talking about a month uh, at least with review code for a non-sort of massive AAA game. Uh, if you want to guarantee to get reviews out for your launch date, which is obviously quite important. Um, so, so that, you know, that, and that applies to whatever game you are, just because of how, you know, journalists have so much to keep up with. Um, and with the best will in the world, when an editor's kind of assigning games to review or whatever, that, that might not happen until sort of really late. It doesn't, they're not trying to hit your sort of little indie embargo date or whatever. No one cares, quite rightly. So there's that problem. The, the logistics are harder now. Do we have an advantage because it's FS? to i mean yes uh we struggled slightly with cortex because it wasn't fs2 and it was a game that was different from what we'd done before but actually having been through that that's helped because we're trying to get into a bit of a faster cycle of announcing things and getting to beta now so all of the contacts i made through doing cortex it was quite well received as well meant that people are anticipating something else from us and there's the excitement that it's you know us revisiting frozen synapse so that has all been massively helpful to me um doing all of this press stuff uh and you know that that's one of the reasons why we decided to do this game it's any advantage that you have now at all is useful to use um and that's what we're going for this is actually transitions perfectly to a question I really wanted to ask you because I was looking through Metacritic and uh, for Cortex, there's about 10 accredited reviews mm. for that game. Well, if you look at the original FS, there's around 30. I feel like when uh, FS2 was announced, there was uh, a lot of, at least, you know, I'm on Twitter quite often. You see a lot of people in the industry circles talking about it and getting excited about it. And I did see definitely some really positive reviews for Cortex. But yeah. when it was announced, it kind of went a bit over my head. Uh, yeah. I, I missed that one a little bit, and to be honest, I haven't been as tied to the news cycle. But still, I feel like that one was at least a little bit more under the radar. Mm. So you look at the ten reviews versus the thirty reviews. Is that at all indicative of the popularity, both sales-wise and in terms of the concurrent players of Cortex versus Synapse when it came out? Uh, and is that something that you at all get frustrated with when something like Cortex doesn't get that? Uh, even if it's not the you got positive reviews but just the number being so low 
Well, Cortex Cortex was always an uphill battle, and it and it, obviously, you know, transparently, anyone can see Steam Spy. It's done a fraction of what FS did. It still um, did okay, sort of by our our metrics, um, and it continues to make money. And it's actually a little bit of a kind of resurgence now, as you say, with people talking about it again. I think it just had a humble bundle as well, which helps. Um, basically, the problem with the game was. Um, and this is something I'm going to be talking about um, at the GDC failure workshop, which is just the most <laughs> oh, depressing man. sounding thing. I don't I don't consider the game a failure by any means. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be talking about part of it there. The concept uh, of the game, this futuristic sport, it just didn't work. It didn't. It made people think it was a sports game. And that turned off a big group of fans that we'd got through Frozen Synapse who were very into combat strategy they want to be thinking about you know going around corners shooting guys with guns which is fine um and i think the problem was that we just didn't we thought that the gameplay would be enough to get those people across and the reason that we thought that was basically just blood bowl because of the existence of blood bowl you know being able to take those kind of games workshop type mechanics and put them in this unusual sort of fun setting we thought you know oh speedball was popular people liked all that stuff this kind of slightly retro 90s thing of future sports is fine um and we'll put all that together and the combination just simply didn't work um for a wide audience people some people just obviously kind of saw what we were doing and loved that do i feel frustrated by it and, and the the comparatively low amount of coverage um i suppose i think i'd feel more frustrated if the reviews were bad Mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of a strange thing to say. It, it, it became very clear that it's a game. It's not a game for everyone. But if you like it and you buy into it, then you you love it. It's great. Uh, you know, there's a lot of very hardcore players of the game. Um, and I can't make myself be disappointed with that. Uh, as much as I want to say, you know, everything we, we do should be this enormous commercial success and it should be building up and even better than Frozen Signups and everything else. I, part of me wants that, but, but a big part of me is like, well, hey, we made this game that is a good game that really pleases some people who get it. That's all you can do, really, I think. And here might be a bizarre question, but you mentioned that the idea of it being a sports game kind of turned people off. And I'm not comparing these two games, but Rocket League kind of had this futuristic, odd, bizarre sports spin to it. And people just lapped that shit up. Uh, yeah. Where like everyone was just playing that game. Was there? Let's say Cortex comes out after <laughs> Rocket League and maybe has even more of a sports focus. Do you think something like that could have caught on or do you think they're just so wildly different the comparison isn't apt? I'm really happy you brought this up. It's something I've thought about a lot because I know for a fact uh, that if I'd seen Rocket League in Alpha, I would have told the devs to change the aesthetic. I'd, I'd say, don't make a sports game. Really? Uh, people will get confused. Yeah, like racing cars playing soccer. Are you crazy? <laughs> but people will think it's a driving game. And what if people don't like soccer? And it, and it's about like these kind of Quake-style aerial like you have to be crazy to think this game will be successful so it just shows like how bad uh it is to make sort of very subjective judgments based on your experience in games um and that really made me think you know when i'm looking at early stage games now uh am i judging them on the right criteria am i being sort of honest with myself about the outside chance of some of these things being successful because obviously rocket league is sort of so wacky and so far removed from anything you could confuse for an actual sport that it probably doesn't have that problem. You know, the fact that it's cars 
the fact that it has this giant crazy looking ball you don't think that it's either a driving game or a soccer game really whereas cortex i think you know certainly the way we 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 portrayed it earlier with the, with the old name end zone as well we had these sort of obvious football looking goals the robots had kind of football pads on them the ball was shaped you know like like a football uh people just thought it was a madden game um and i understand why you know that's not that's our fault in in communicating that uh i don't know if if rocket league coming first would have <laughs> would have helped cortex I, I i think that might be a little bit of a stretch but um certainly the relationship between those two things does really interest me and one more question about cortex uh i was talking to ian stalker who made uh his most recent game is escape go 2 um, oh, yeah yeah and really great guy really interesting games um and he had that double fine backing for escape go 2 and it kind of seemed like it was just being poised to just really knock it out of the park just better aesthetic than the other one much bigger uh, bigger scope and he had mentioned that uh just timing and just how he kind of handled everything up to launch it just sold well below expectations and he was just very honest about it and i think it's similar to the cortex thing where he doesn't consider it a failure because it did get high critical praise and uh it sold enough that it, it's not like it was it, you know killed his bank account or anything like that yeah but he looks back on it and you know looks at like he wish he would have done it this way and that way. Uh, mm. Have you considered for FS2? I because you're a small studio and it's it's very difficult to, you know, make sure you're aligning all the press coverage, all the YouTubers, all the streamers to mm. you know make mm. your launch as big as possible. Is there any moment where you're like maybe I could hire someone to just explicitly do that? Do you have anyone anyone on your team who focuses really hard on making sure that? you are not only making a great game, but making sure you're releasing it in the correct environment? So I've basically always done uh, our press stuff. And we have used Beefjack PR, who are a really great PR agency based in the UK. And they helped us with an event. Uh, we did Rest, and they basically organized all our press for, for the event and made sure that we got loads of attention, loads of interviews and stuff. And that was really good. I, I was had some health problems at the time, so I couldn't work in the run up to it. So it was either that or <laughs> we wouldn't get any press from the event. Um, so that was the one time when we had uh, someone fill in. But Ian and I actually, we just had a meeting a couple of weeks ago where we said, like, I now need to spend the overwhelming majority of my time on this, on external yeah. stuff, because the people who do that kind of thing really well are just streets ahead of us. And because of FS2, we've got to use the advantage of people wanting to talk about it. So now my, my job has changed a lot uh, and I'm just doing more of the things that I used to that I used to do, but just kind of taking many, many more opportunities to go to events, to do shows like this one to just talk about the game getting people interested in having that conversation and yeah um a lot of it will be around planning these sort of key points and how to get the game out to as you say streamers which is which is a new one for us but i think yeah. quite a few people will be into fs2 and youtube as well um yeah so so we've really kind of refocused on that and a lot more of my time is, is spent on that now and uh going back to fs1 really quickly i know at one point and maybe this is still the case uh, you were selling the game in bundles where yeah. it was uh, multiple copies of the game. Um, was, were there certain numbers? Was it like two and four or was it just four? How, was, how were you exactly doing that? Um, it was a free key for a friend okay. was the way that we, that we did it. So two for one, effectively. So what was exactly your thinking there? Because honestly, I think that was the reason I probably first got into the game because my editor at the time had bought the game. He gave me a copy and we did some video content and some different content around it, both playing against each other. And I know that part of you has to be like... It, there has to be something in your mind where you're like, well, I could be having my possible sales. Like, you know, we're only technically charging for the one. 
but FS is such a a game that needs multiple players. It's such a multiplayer focused thing. So was a lot of your thinking there, like, look, we don't know how many people are going to be like buying this right off the bat. We need to get as many players in this environment at once. Otherwise, if people see there's no one playing this game, it could be DOA. Yeah, it was it was multifactorial. So I wanted to price the game at uh, twenty five dollars, um, which because we'd seen other strategy games do really well at that price. I think one one of them was Gratuitous Space Battles, uh, Cliff Harris's game, mm-hmm. uh, and so I wanted to go for that price. And Ian said, "Well, that seems quite expensive to me. Can we do anything to mitigate that? Maybe we should give away a free copy." Um, and we we thought, "Ah, that's quite an aggressive thing to do." But then we talked about it and. The number one problem that indie games, mid-tier indie games, still have is reach. You know, if you're Undertale or if you're Five Nights at Freddy's or whatever, and you have that viral thing, which is something that no one can control or do intentionally, then you don't need reach. You, you reach out automatically. If you're below that, you need to do all the things you possibly can to just simply make people aware of your game. Um, so there was that aspect of it. You know, we'll get more awareness of the game you know, maybe there are 5 million people in the world total who would ever consider playing the game. So how can we reach those with no marketing budget? The other thing is, because it's a multiplayer game, as you said, it it, it really needs, you need to know that you can play against another person. And the way indie multiplayer games are generally is that they don't tend to take off and get a big community unless they're Rocket League. So the the knowledge that i if i buy this game i can play it with my one friend who i always play games with i can play it with my brother i can play it with my son i can do whatever i can think of the person that i'm going to play it with as i'm buying it and know that i can at least get like one game with them that was a really compelling idea to me and that it, that is the thing that i think really resonated with our community i've i've had so many people say you know, oh, myself and my wife play this game all the time or whoever. It, it just, that one other person is so, so important for, for the idea of the game. Um, and it's something that we want to keep doing. Uh, FS2 will be your fourth game. Yeah. Determinants came out in 2007. FS1 mm-hmm. was 2011. And then mm-hmm. Cortex was last year, correct? Yes, it was, yeah. And FS2 is coming out this year. Yes. How how did that happen? How did this? Because you know, if you if you're looking at this as a as a trend, as as a pattern, yeah. something mm. changed. Where suddenly you're like, I don't know. How about we make it in like one year instead of three or four? Was uh, FS2 being developed alongside Cortex? Um, no, but it was being sort of internally gestated. So Ian was definitely thinking of ideas during that and the thing with fs2 is it uses a substantial portion of of fs1 so we we don't have to design a new game and that's the thing that always takes us a really long amount of time is is the prototype iterate iteration phase um that's what took all the time on frozen synapse um and and cortex to some extent so with this we know what the game is we're changing some elements of it and those are being iterated and worked on right now but they're not massive you know we're not making it like a fully real-time fps or whatever it's, it, it's still frozen synapse so that's gone so what this is about is taking that and putting it in this incredible context that we think uh is, is just going to blow the game wide open and, and bring loads of people in so we're just working on sort of how we frame that core gameplay in a different way um and that in theory will take less time than making an entirely new game whether or not we actually manage to do that or not is, of course, still up in the air because it's game development. Uh, anything can happen. But we, the thing that we're really, really keen on is to get the game into a good beta and then see if it, if it starts doing well and people really like the ideas in beta, then 
it's something that we could spend time, you know, adding lots of features to, and maybe that full release date would go back. But we're kind of trying to be realistic and looking at what we sort of expect, you know, might happen in beta. We do still want to try and get the game out this year. Um, the date recently slipped from earlier in this year to very late in this year. Um, so who knows, it may slip again. But we, we really, whether naively or not, believe we can we can make it happen just from that advantage of knowing, you know, what the game is and having had a long time to think about it. And you mentioned bringing a whole bunch of new people in, which is, of course, you know, always a goal for people making sequels. But when you're framing this, when you're pitching this, when you're trying to sell this to people... Is a lot of the goal, like, you know, we want to make sure we get all the people who loved FS1 to love FS2, or do you kind of treat this as almost a new debut, where it's like, we want to make sure, you know, if people have never heard of it, doesn't matter, here is this new, exciting game that uh, maybe just, you know, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people have just never heard of this series, and this is their introduction. It, it, you have to do both, I think, when, you, when you're doing a sequel. The existing Frozen Synapse community uh, and also, you know, those players who followed us through Frozen Cortex, massively important to us. And we just sent out, when we did the announcement, um, I sent out uh, an email to all of our mailing list and went on our Steam community and Facebook and said, you know, we're doing this. What do you guys want to have in the game? Which is a super dangerous question <laughs> totally. to ask. Like, that is really opening the floodgates. And what we saw was so many people saying stuff that is either stuff that we're literally doing right now or stuff that is sort of thematically in line with our thinking um there's been a couple of sort of slightly surprising directions that the community went in that are sort of under discussion with us right now but a lot of the time i could just look down these big wish list posts and go like yep we're doing that yep we're doing that <laughs> but yeah sort of something like that but you know enough like it that's a, so that's been really surprising and really encouraging it really feels like we're on the same page with people who love the game already and that just makes me think you know if you come to the game and you feel like the things it's lacking are x y and z um then that's got to be compelling for new people because we know the concept of the game fundamentally works a lot of people were very interested in a sort of very specific tactical game that was quite minimalistic and pared down and really made you feel like you were going into these environments. So if we're then satisfying the stuff that people who played for a while think, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you could do this? That to me is the best way of appealing to these new players. Um, there's going to be the, the main announcement that's uh, going to happen pretty soon is about the single player. Um, and there's stuff that we, we're doing there. It's the open world tactics idea, which I'm not going to expand on too much now, but this idea that you can take something like that, and put it in a new context that people who've played other bigger grand strategy games might like. Hopefully we we can really tap into something that the strategy audience loves and is a bit unusual. And yeah, you have this very hardcore audience, I would assume, who have played this game for so long. So going yeah. to them, compared to like, if, you know, let's say you are a Call of Duty developer and you're on Twitter, like, what do you guys want? You're going to get so much dumb shit. You're going to get so many things <laughs> where it's like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, Kratos can't be in this game. Like, I know you really want it, but it's not going to work out. For you, you yeah. do have this core audience who have this uh, love for your game. And especially if, if they're still playing it, you know, five years later, six years later. They yeah. definitely have, you know, played enough of it to have all these different opinions. Uh, right, I mean, and right. talking about this this gap since the first one. So I know I, I'm not going to force you to say too much about this second game because I know, you know, that'll be coming out in the near future. Uh, but just overall, compared to 2011 when FS1 came out, how much more do you know about this business, about game development, uh, since you've made uh, Cortex in between that? How much can you take from all these experiences and really put into fs2 to make it 
a better, bigger, more interesting game for more people? Um, yeah, it, it's the things that you learn kind of through doing a bunch of different games and through being around for a while that they tend to be quite sort of specific odd things like you just get a sense of how a player is going to react to something for me i i'm very i'm a very negative person so i tend to i tend to focus on the things that are wrong with stuff that we're doing things that are going to be confusing or weird or annoying or just get on people's nerves after a while or not let people do the things they want uh, which drives everyone else in the company crazy but you do pick up on certain things you can just round those edges off in terms of more general stuff about how we can you know use the experience to make this good i i really think that what we've come to understand a lot more is is why people are interested in a game in the first place like what is the concept that draws someone into a game and how can we do things to support that uh, and i think that kind of intuitive sense is something that comes with with experience like it's very difficult to know how people are going to react to something you make and the things they're going to want but i think when you start being able to anticipate that and when you're playing you know you really feel in line with those players the things that you want to the things they want um then it does become a lot easier uh and that's why we're sort of we're just trying to take the game and, and make it into this into this bigger grander thing um that has always been something people wanted. You know, people always said that they wanted to have more context for what they were doing. They wanted to feel like their tactics were important. Something that XCOM does amazingly well is it makes you feel like, you know, every shot really matters. You don't want to lose one of your units. You don't want to, you know, lose a level because it matters. And so that's what we're going for with this. And this is another bizarre question, maybe about comparing things. Do you think the uh, popularity of XCOM and XCOM 2 might actually help your game? Because for me, I... Your game was the first one that really started to make me feel more comfortable with tactical strategy games like this. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like XCOM even more so. Do you think this uh, 2016 or early 2017, whenever FS2 comes out, do you think everything that's come before it has actually created a more welcoming environment for a title like yours? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think strategy is really healthy right now, especially on PC. If you look at what companies like Paradox are doing, yeah. um, and then you know, and you look at this stuff as well. Just th there is this big audience uh, that wants a really deep and kind of uh, profound strategy experience, and whether that's in a AAA framework, I mean, XCOM really balances its sort of hardcore nature with that that triple a polish and that sort of quite constrained in some way set of things uh, that the player is is actually able to do it really balances those two things well and that is going to bring in a more general audience but our game is so different from that despite being sort of in in the same genre it really offers almost an opposite philosophical approach to that kind of game design mm. uh, and that's what's really encouraging for me you know i don't feel like we're competing with XCOM we'd certainly be competing you know, if, if our games launched at the same time we'd massively be competing for that audience's attention but generally I think you know uh, once people have sort of figured out what they can get from XCOM 1 and 2 they will go and start looking for different types of strategy experience and that's what we're offering there's absolutely nothing else that plays like frozen signups and absolutely. frozen cortex that exists um, and we've always felt more comfortable being in, a, in an area where the specific thing we're doing is totally unique um, I think with Cortex, what we did was strayed too far outside the general area of what we were doing being too unique. Uh, and, and so we're hoping Frozen Signups 2 will just bring that back into line with what that audience wants. Um, but yeah, no, I would absolutely love it if, if, if there are new strategy gamers playing XCOM 2 and then they're like, hey, what's this weird 
funny looking indie game. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's a good way to put it because people aren't going, hopefully going from like, well, I love XCOM and XCOM 2, so I want to play something exactly like that. Let's go play FS2. And like that that's not exactly yeah. the parallel. It's maybe just yeah. more of I'm now more comfortable in this space and right. I right. enjoy this now and maybe I can explore more within this genre. I know um, some people went from XCOM to Fire Emblem. Uh, yes, which kind yeah. of has a similar but similar but different. So there might be kind of a similar uh, next step in this way. Uh, sure. Who knows? I mean, it'd be great to see. Uh, and yeah, during the end of these podcasts, which we've already been talking for a long time, uh, I usually try to give some sort of piece of advice to. It's usually for writers because I've never made a game. I'm currently working technically on a game, but awesome. uh, my kind of my tip for the end of this podcast uh, relates very much to your game because, like I said, when I first had played. Uh, FS1, I just felt intimidated, not because of the game, but because of what I thought the game would be uh, mm. and what that genre very often offers. And uh, giving that game a chance, I really discovered how much I like that. And it made me want to play more games like uh, Valkyria Chronicles and XCOM and other things in the future. I think very often we get kind of, we bundle up with our gaming comfort food of, for me, it was always like JRPGs <laughs> or like adventure <laughs> games or shooters. Um, and then you miss out on so many interesting things that you would just never play otherwise. I've always struggled with um, massive open world uh, Western RPGs because yeah. I just, yeah. you get overwhelmed. I'll, all of a sudden I have 40 side quests. And I'm like, what? I don't want to get this guy's cat. Like, I just want to keep going. <laughs> but then you have this perfectionist part of your mind, this completionist thing where you're like, but I want to do everything. I want to see everything. And just recently I finally buckled down and beat The Witcher 3 and had a blast doing it and played it my way. And didn't do every single side quest, but did just enough to kind of scratch that itch. And that made me want to go and play Dragon Age and other things. So I think taking that first step, sometimes you got to force yourself. It sounds weird to say force yourself to play a video game because it's, yep. it's a video game. But I think it is important if you want to, whether you're writing, especially if you're writing about games, because you get to open up those uh, different areas. And um, I talked about this on a podcast previous uh, Defenders of Time, I think is what it was called, which is like a tower defense kind of strategy game. Um, I had very little understanding of tower defense at the time, but my editor from GameSpot was like, I want to like challenge you to do this. And it was really difficult. I had to put more work in it than any of the review. <laughs> but I learned so goddamn much and grew from it. And I think that was really important for me. So for me, if, you, if you're a writer and you're listening to this, try the things. You might find out that maybe your favorite genre is something that you thought you hated but just had preconceived notions <laughs> about. So that's my tip. Uh, I know, Paul, you've given a lot. You've talked a lot about uh, how you got to where you are and a lot of different uh, development concepts. Is there anything else you want to give to people maybe who are just trying to get into this and are not totally sure where to start or what to expect? I think my main tip really is to just do the things that enable you to survive. I think almost everyone who's had a successful game has had quite a few failures or at least failures, you know, along the way. So the best thing to do is to try and get yourself into a situation where if the thing you're currently working on fails, then you can, you won't get completely demoralized. You won't lose your house. You won't, you know, lose all your relationships and friends. Keep your life going, make your life sustainable and make it work. Now, that doesn't mean do horribly underambitious, boring games that no one cares about, that no one's going to buy. But it does mean just, just, so like, think of it as a long-term thing. If you love games and you love making games, you're going to find a way of doing that. 
however it has to happen. So think of it as, as a long run and do put your heart and soul into what you're making, but also try and, and retain something that's going to enable you to carry on and make more games in the future. Absolutely. I, yeah, I think it's it can be hard to not get overly excited and be like, I just, I've always wanted to do this. I have this really big grand idea, yeah. putting all my savings into this. And that's just... Yeah, once again, going back to my personality, that sounds terrifying. Like, I would probably be overly careful and be like, well, let's just kind of dip my toe. But um, usually the successful indie devs that I've talked to, uh, like Supergiant and like uh, you and uh, the Fulbright Company, it was kind of this this very good understanding of this industry, a very uh, good understanding of what they wanted to make and understanding that they can't make this massive scale game to begin with. You yeah. start at a certain level and make something interesting and unique and you build from there and it seems like exactly what you're doing and like i said i'm super excited for fs2 i was really just pumped when i saw that news on twitter and i took my own advice from a few podcasts back where i'm like okay think i'm excited about i'm going to immediately email you and be like we should talk about this (laughs) because it interests me and i know it interests other people so paul i best of luck with this game it sounds like you really have everything together and it sounds like the community is excited for it and it sounds like you are kind of doing everything they want to do, judging from you know what you heard from them. So uh, if people want to find you uh, on social media or your website, where's the best place to look? Um, well, first, just thank you so much for, for that. And, and also, we really, really appreciate uh, if anyone sort of wants to take the time to chat to us more about our work or whatever. That That's something that we unbelievably appreciate because as we've talked about on, on this podcast uh, when you start it's so difficult to get anyone to care or yeah. be interested in anything you're doing um so that makes a massive difference to us in terms of uh yeah where you can find more uh, i'm mode seven games on twitter my twitter is a little bit strange uh i tweet <laughs> the same joke every day but you can generally ignore that i just do that to wind up a specific group of people that it really really angers uh, so on Twitter is good and I talk, I will talk to you if you ask me questions and stuff on there I will talk to you um, frozensignups2.com if you go there and uh, you can look at the screenshot that we released and also if you join our mailing list you can get a track from the soundtrack um, that you can listen to and imagine all the wonderful tactical events that will happen when you play the game uh, yeah those are the best things to do Twitter and frozensignups2.com alright fantastic well thank you again Paul and thanks everyone for listening and hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099